back to one more thing. This is the AP Euro version of one more thing. Renaissance part one art section one. I don't know, something like that. Anyway, you're going to roll right into what we are covering in class currently. And I'll probably be uploading another couple of these uh, as we go through the Renaissance unit. So here is the section that will include the characteristics of Renaissance art and early versions of art in the Renaissance era, including the Duomo and the David. Okay, so what we're going to go through is we're going to go through the close reading assignment that you guys did. Um, I'm going to do it with you so that you have an opportunity to see what close reading should look like. Uh, I would say that the biggest issue that we had was that people were trying to make comparisons, but they were making them like within the document itself and not actually making comparison to like historical things outside of the document. And so when we go through it, um, my goal is for you to see how I would do it, understanding that my historical context is going to be broader than yours right now. As you get down the line, you're gonna have more things to compare to. So if you open up the document, um, that you turned into me, which I turned back to you on Google Classroom. Uh, the document should look like... Um, so I'm going to post a copy of the Middle Ages Renaissance close reading example into this. So second and fourth period, you're going to be able to watch this while you guys are doing it. What I'm going to do, since first period I did this with them, I kind of marked the text with them and showed them what I would comment on different things to make sure that we are getting that fourth point of historical analysis. Most people were turning in what was probably anywhere from a two and a half to a three and a half. I don't think I got much of anyone around a four, maybe one or two that got close. Um, and again, I think that the biggest issue was that historical thinking still. So that's what I wanna go over with you. Now, I'm gonna read the document with you. And as we go through, you can mark the text with me, okay? Um, what I'm going to do is the next close reading assignment that I'm going to give you is going to be on a humanism packet uh, that I think is like two or three humanist writers. Uh, Bruni's one. Um, I may try to get Castiglione in there and I want to get uh, Erasmus or Sir Thomas More. So one of the northern uh, Christian humanists as well. This particular close reading is not going to get graded in Aries because it probably would have been a situation where many people were going to get twos and threes again because they're missing that last component. So I want to go through it with you in class like I am right now. Um, first of all, this first one is our Middle Ages document. So you guys all have this in front of you. Is that right? Man was formed out of earth, conceived in guilt, born to punishment. What he does is deprived and illicit. It's shameful and improper, vain and unprofitable. He will become fuel for the eternal fires Food for worms, a mass of rottenness. Sounds nice and bright. Um, now, what I did here is on the side of a mass of rottenness um, is I made a connection to a different time period actually in American history when a guy named Jonathan Edwards is writing or not writing, but actually doing a sermon called uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. So you can see the um, comments I have on the side is I reference Jonathan Edwards, I reference the Great Awakening when he's talking, and I reference the work that he is speaking in. And the reason that Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God is a good comparison here is that 
Edwards during the Great uh, Awakening was kind of preaching to the colonists that they were going to hell in a handbasket. And because they were going to hell, it was because we were incredibly sinful in need of a savior, almost the exact tone that Pope Innocent starts with. Okay, so I w- this is what I mean by making a connection outside of the document. Um, if you said something like what I was getting a lot of in a lot of the uh, close reading assignments I was grading was people, instead of saying something about Jonathan Edwards or something outside of the document historically, is they were saying something like this, like a massive rottenness. They were highlighting that, putting a little comment on the side that would say something like, this is how the middle age uh, or medieval person would think. Well, that might be true, but it's not really giving me specific evidence of a broader context of, or a similarity to another large historical figure outside of the document. And that's really what the historical thinking skills are meant to do. And so what you're going to find as we go through this is that this will become easier for you the longer we go through the course. So by the time we get to the second semester, you might have six people you could compare to the document that you're reading right now. Currently, it might be more difficult. So I would say you need to get a four. You're going to want to have one to two significant comparisons per page. Um, I would say if I were doing this and I will do it with you here, um, I could get up to six or eight of them. So they're there. They're they're evident. Um, It's just being able to draw them out. And like I said, it's a process to get there. So we also um, highlight that first part because this is kind of his premise of what we are. He says, I shall try to make my explanation clear and my treatment fuller. Man was formed of dust, slime, and ashes. What is even more vile and the filthiest seed? He was conceived from the itch of flesh and the heat of passion and the stench of lust and worse yet with the stain of sin. Born to toil, dread, and trouble, and more wretched still, was only born to die. Also very fun and cheery. Now if you click on that sentence, um, the comment I put on the side for this one is, Uh, Thomas Hobbes states in Leviathan that man's life is nasty, brutish, and short. This is almost a direct quote to what Pope Innocent is describing as far as how man's life is. And so you could put that um, in the comment section as a connection to another period. Um, Thomas Hobbes states in Leviathan, man's life is nasty, brutish, and short. Now, uh, many other philosophers will allude to certain types of ideas like this, but probably nobody with almost an exact quote, like this born to toil, tread, and trouble is very similar to nasty, brutish, and short, right? Um, Now, he commits depraved acts, which he offends God, his neighbor, and himself, shameful acts by which he defiles his name, his person, and his conscience, and vain acts by which he ignores all things important, useful, and necessary. He will become fuel for the fires which are forever hot and burn forever bright. Food for worm, for which forever nibbles and digests. A mass of rottenness which will forever stink and reek. Again, very nice of him. Now, if you wanted to, you could also highlight this um, section here. Uh, He will become fuel for fire. Digest this whole section here. And um, what you could do is add a comment on the side that uh, the other person that talks about this ideology in regards to hell, because he's 
specifically referencing hell, but he's referencing um, Dante. Um, and Dante Alighieri writes in Inferno or uh, his about like the rings of hell. And really, this is the, the Middle Ages. Like later on, this is how people are going to view hell itself. Now, Dante might be writing a little bit after Pope Innocent, but when you talk about the hells and the, and the fires that will never extinguish, um, that's a reference to the way that people perceived hell. So, biblical as well. So, you can add that on the side. He now says, A bird is born to fly. Man is born to toil. All his days are full of toil and hardship. And at night, his mind has no rest. And I highlighted that sentence because I'm going to come back to it. So, um, at the end of this, what we can do maybe under here is add a comment that um, will reference in second document. Because if you've read the second document already, you know very quickly that the second document is a little more cheery in regards to man than the first document. The first document sounds like I'm probably just going to die walking out the door. And the first or the second document is pretty much like if I walk out that door, I might just start, you know, amazing, being amazing just for breathing. Very different view, right? So he then goes on a bit of a rant about how like man's life is like, right? How much anxiety tortures mortals. They suffer from all kinds of cares, are burdened with worry, tremble and shrink with fears and terrors, are weighted down with sorrow. Their nervousness makes them depressed. Their depression makes them nervous. Rich or poor, master or slave, married or single, good or bad, all suffer worldly torments and are tormented by the worldly vexations. For sudden sorrow always follows worldly joy. What begins in gaiety ends in grief. What worldly happiness is besprinkled indeed with much bitterness. Then suddenly, when least expected misfortune strikes, a calamity befalls us, disease attacks or death, which no one can escape and carries us off. Men strive, especially for three things, riches, pleasure, and honors. Riches lead to immorality, pleasures to shame, honors to vanity. Now, in the side, I did one for this because I thought this is something that you guys could make an easier connection to. Um, basically, I put in here that... Uh, the, the karma thing. Did I put it over here? Where's my comment on karma? Or did I put it over here? No, I want to view comment. Um, where's the karma comment? Oh, there it is. So when it says, then suddenly when least expected misfortune strikes, that, that whole thing, I just put in there in the comments, this is a lot like a, a cultural ideology of karma or yin-yang or something like that, where it's like you have a positive followed by a negative so that you, you get this like balance. So even though this is a pope and clearly talking about more of a religious standpoint, um, it's also very similar to other ideologies um, throughout the world that you could reference in regards to this kind of idea of balance. Um, he then says, man is lifted up high. Suppose he is raised to the very peak. At once he grows, uh, his cares grow heavy, his worries mount. 
He eats less, cannot sleep, and so nature is corrupted. His spirit weakens, his sleep disturbed, his appetite lost, his strength diminished, he loses weight, exhausting himself. He scarcely lives half a lifetime and ends his wretched days with a more wretched death. Again, very bright and shiny version of man. Um, he then says, almost the whole life of mortals is full of sin, so that no one can scarcely find anyone who goes not astray, does not return to his own vomit and rot in his own dung. Instead, they are glad when they have done evil and rejoice in the most wicked things. And then I put on here, like, man is like a dog, never really changing or progressing. So just commentary on his ideology here. He says, being filled with iniquity, malice, fornication, avarice, wickedness, envy, murder, contention, deceit. And then he goes on a uh, rant of just adjectives of how amazing that you can be, right? I mean, or not amazing. Whisper, detract for, hateful to God, irreverent, plotters of evil. I know I'm skipping things. Disobedient to parents. He's like all these terrible things and then like you don't even obey your parents. Foolish, dissolute, without affection, infidelity, without mercy. The world is such and worse. It abounds, it abounds in heretics, schismatics, traitors and tyrants, seminists and hypocrites, the ambitious and covetous, robbers and brigands, violent men, extortionists, usurers, forgers, the impious, the sacrilegious, the betrayers and liars, the flatterers, deceivers, gossips, tricksters, gluttons, drunkards, adulterers, assetuous men, deviates and dirty-minded, the lazy, the careless, the vain, the prodigal, the impetuous, the irascible, the impatient and inconstant poisoners, fortune tellers, perjurers, uh, cursors, men who are presumptuous and arrogant, but unbelieving and desperate, and finally, those ensnared in all of them together. Good times. So, by the end of this, and you could put this at the very end. Um, let's select this, and we'll make a comment here at the at the end here. Um, man isn't worth anything. Good summation. Man is worth nothing. Okay, so you have the first document that obviously, um, what is the point? What is his goal in writing this document? Man sucks. Man sucks. Say what? It's pretty pessimistic and nihilistic. What else? What is his intent in writing this? Who do you think he's speaking to? The common folk, probably that are Catholic, that are Catholic. People that need to be scared. And what is his purpose? Maybe. Maybe to force obedience. What else? Sure. Maybe to say, hey, you know, you're so decrepit and unable to do anything on your own. The only hope you have is, is a savior. And that really goes back to that. Uh, sinners in the hands of the angry God idea that, that comes back in the Great Awakening with Jonathan Edwards and that kind of thing. So um, now we're going to look at Pico. And what's going to be super ironic between these two documents is that one guy is the Pope. The other guy is a layman, meaning just an average person in the church. But And they're both going to be talking about the scriptures or the Old Testament. It's just one gets to a vastly different place. Right? So, let's look at the first part here of Pico. 
Pico says they have read in the records of the Arabians, Reverend Fathers, the Abdallah, and Sarakin, when questioned as to what on this stage of the world, as it were, come to the most worthy what, uh, worthy of wonder, replied, there is nothing, and then I highlighted this, there is nothing to be seen more wonderful than man. So the idea is that man is not only good, he's the pinnacle of existence. That's supposed to say now, not no. Man is not only good now, he's the pinnacle of existence. Now, what is this first part a reference to? Starts with a G. Greco-Roman. So he starts with the Greco-Roman tradition, and then what do you think he's going to introduce next? The Catholic tradition. So he starts with the Greco-Roman tradition, and then he's going to transfer into the Catholic tradition. Remember that the Renaissance, while it does have strong elements of secularism, is still done in the context of a very Catholic world. And so it's difficult to really separate the fact that these guys are still thinking from an incredibly Catholic worldview, okay? So he just needs to find somewhere in the scripture that reaffirms what he's thinking. So where does he go? The beginning. Yes, Genesis. So um, he says, but when I weighed the reasons for these maxims, the many grounds for excellence of the human nature reported by men failed to satisfy me. The man is the intermediary between creatures, the imitation of the gods, the king of the lower beings, by the acuteness of his senses, by the discernment of his reason, and by the light of his intelligence, the interpreter of nature, the interval between fixed eternity and fleeting time. And as the Persians say, the bond, nay, rather the marriage of the song of the world on David's testimony, but little, little lower than the angels. So go ahead and... Uh, Highlight that last part of David's testimony. And this is the biblical of account of man's ability and position just under the angels. So instead of specifically talking about how terrible man can be, Pico is going to instead flip the script and decide that man isn't just amazing, he's really amazing. He's just below the angels. I mean, we talked about this, I think, last week. I think, wasn't this the class that we had a bit, a bit of a discussion about dolphins and intelligence? Must have been fourth period. Dolphins are very intelligent, by the way. Um, so intelligent, actually, that they can learn language even when they don't have the proper mechanism to do that language. So did you know that they've taught dolphins versions of sign language where they can communicate with dolphins. The ironic thing, of course, is that dolphins don't have hands. And so sign language is a very one-way process, right? But they're smart enough to learn our language without hands, um, which means that they're incredibly intelligent. But the difference is man is slightly different in that we have not only the intelligence, we have the ability to leave a lasting mark. And I will explain that as we go. Um, meaning that we have the ability to create things that remember us. If you look at art history, even the prehistoric man is leaving 
cave art 30,000 years ago that we can say see to this day that describes their culture and their way of life. And so while, and this is kind of the point that Pico is going to be making throughout his document, is that man is special in, in the whole creation story. And then he goes specifically to the creation story to explain from a Christian perspective why man is special. Okay. Do you have a question? Yes. Yes. That's one of the other significant. And the, the question or the, the comment had to do with gorillas and, and apes who have been taught sign language. And yeah, it is also a very one way process where you can um, get a bit of an interaction, but there's no like questioning on the part of uh, gorillas or apes. So um, as we go forward, Admittedly, great through these reasons be, they are not the principal grounds that these, uh, those which may rightfully claim for themselves the privilege of highest admiration. For why should we not admire more the angels themselves and the blessed choirs of heaven? At least it seems to me as I have come to understand why man is the most fortunate of creatures and consequently worthy of all admiration and what precisely is that rank, which is his lot in the universal chain of being. And then I highlighted this next part, a rank to which be envied not only by the brutes, but even by the stars and by minds beyond this world. He's saying that even the heavenly angels envy man. So he's making a pretty big statement in the, the course of like the Catholic tradition. Now, this is all biblical accounting of things. Uh, so he's referencing the Bible continually through this. And I think that that is an important thing to remember as you read this document is that he is doing what the Pope is doing. He's just doing it in reverse and showing how good how good man can be and the intent of man being good uh, versus what Pope Innocent believes, where he's saying man is totally worth nothing and needs a savior. Okay, Um, same book, different outcome. He then says, uh, it is a matter of past faith and a wondrous one. Why should it not be? For it is the very account that man is rightly called and judged a great miracle and a wonderful creature. And then he gives a reference in this whole next section is a paraphrasing of what? The, yeah, the Genesis story. It, it's a direct, and if you go down to this part, which is where I put this here. Um, now Moses, who he quotes here, wrote most of the Old Testament, most of the Torah. And so... When you go back and look at what Genesis says, he's almost paraphrasing. So what I put in the the, um, comments, Moses wrote much of the Old Testament, including biblical reinforcement of a Renaissance view of man, seeing man as having God-like qualities. And the whole idea is, and I'll paraphrase this because this is kind of a long section. The idea is if God made the heavens and the earth, he finished all of that and he wasn't, he wasn't satisfied yet because he had no one to appreciate it. And then he makes man and basically gives us stewardship over earth. Okay. But remember that he made man, according to the biblical perspective, with what? This is important for humanism. This is like where humanism starts. If God made man 
What did he make man with that makes him special? God-like qualities. He's made in the image of God. That's a direct quote from the Bible. So that's kind of where humanism starts, is that man is endued with God-like qualities. Everyone have what you need here in the comment section? Do you guys notice how this is a little different way of doing close reading than what you were probably doing before? So I, I'm not going to grade the one that you just did, but I'll, I'll grade the, the next one when we get into that kind of stuff. That's what I'm looking for as far as uh, going outside of the text. And he says, but there was not amongst his architects from which he could fashion a new offspring nor there was in his treasure houses anything we might bestow on his new son as an inheritance, nor was there seats in all the world, a place where a ladder might sit to contemplate the universe. All was now complete. All things had been assigned to the highest, the middle, and the lowest orders. But in its final creation was not part of the God, uh, Father's power to fail as though exhausted. It was not part of his wisdom to waver in a needful matter uh, through poverty of counsel. It was not part of his kindly love that he was to praise God's divine generosity in regard to others, should be compelled to condemn it in regard to himself. At last, the best of artisans ordained that the creature to whom he had been able to give nothing proper to himself should have joint possession of whatever had been peculiar to each of the different kinds of beings. He therefore took man as a creature of indeterminate nature and assigning him a place in the middle of the world addressed him neither a fixed abode nor a form that is thine alone nor a function, function particular to thyself have we given thee? And then on the side here, um, this is the part where I put, if we are God-like, we have God-like qualities, which include free thought, intelligence, man is given authority, and the ability to create. If we are God-like, we have God-like qualities, which include free thought, intelligence, man is given authority, and the ability to create. Do you have a question? Um, the apple story demonstrated the free will that man was given already. The apple? You're correct, but uh, it, you're, you're right. And we'll get more into that later when we get to other views on women. Um, but not yet. You're going to sidetrack me and I can't do that. I'm podcasting right now. I can't do the women thing right now. That's 20 minutes. I won't get back. So, <laughs> um, and then I, I highlighted this next part because this is kind of the, what, what I would consider how man is special, okay? Thou constrained by no limits in accordance with their own free will, uh, in whose hand we have placed shall and ordain for thyself the limits of thy nature. We have set uh, at the world center and can observe whatever is in the world. I'll, I'll make the old English into English if you want. Um, heaven or earth, mortal or immortal, so that the freedom of choice and with honor as though the maker, a molder of thyself, Thou mayest uh, fashion thyself in whatever shape thou shalt prefer, um, meaning that you can create your own destiny in a way. Have power to uh, degenerate into the lower forms of life, which are brutish. Um, power out of 
your soul to be reborn in the higher forms. We are divine. Uh, basically, this whole idea is that man has his own ability to create and whatnot. Beasts, as soon as they are born, um, bring with them from their mother's womb all that they will ever possess. Uh, basically, that we are godlike from the womb. And then this whole, uh, the, the whole rest of this is specifically talking about our ability to create, our ability that we are special, our ability that we are set apart from the rest of the creation, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I like starting the Renaissance here from an intellectual perspective because the contrast is so sharp, right? You have the Middle Ages, Pope Innocent. Man is not worth nothing. And at the bottom of this, what I did, here's what I did. And you can do this at the bottom of your document. And I apologize, but I have to switch mediums because I couldn't quite do, I couldn't draw on the document. So I did it like this. Basically made a list of Pico versus Pope Innocent. Um, and if you're doing a comparison of two documents, or if I give you two, docu two documents specifically that have significant different, significantly different content, um, you may want to do something like this at the end of the document. And one easy way to do it in Google Docs is just to make yourself push insert table and then make a two by two. Put Pico on one side, put Pope Innocent on the other. So push insert table and then make a two by two. And that way you'll have a little comparison chart there. Put Pico on one side. Pico's writing in 1486. Put Pope Innocent on the other side. He's writing in 1199. First period decided that Pope Innocent said men suck. Very technical term. Uh, conceived in guilt or conceived in sin, live in sin, and die in sin. They're in desperate need of a savior and that all good that they try ends up turning into bad. Pico, again, we're using the same book to describe man. Pope Innocent is doing and making biblical references. And so is Pico. It's just a different way of looking at those things. Pico says, ability to be godlike. We can create. We're made just below the angels. Man is good. And it's actually a combo of Judeo-Christian values and Greco-Roman values. That's the JC values and Greco-Roman values. So if we're trying to describe humanism, I definitely think there are elements of humanism that are secular, meaning outside of the church. But you have to realize that many of these guys are still incredibly dependent on the worldview that they live in, right? And the world that, worldview that they are seeing the world through. And so for them, they have to make an argument, if they're going to make an argument anyone's going to read, through a Christian perspective, Right? this make sense? So if you're going to make an argument, what better than to use the Genesis story? Like, are you going to debate me on Moses? 
are you going to d- debate me on the stuff that's we started with? Because that's all I'm doing is I'm paraphrasing the start. And he is. He's paraphrasing Genesis when he does his stuff. So, everyone have this at the bottom of their document? When I'm looking for close reading, this is more of what I'm looking for. I would say the thing that most everyone did pretty well was vocab. Now, I didn't do any vocab with you, mostly because I was doing this on an iPad. And on an iPad, it's harder to do the vocab because the definition function isn't there. If, I, if it was there, I would have done it with you, but it's not there. Um, but I also thought, you know what? They did this well. I don't need to review this with them. Okay. Uh, so for the most part, you guys were fine with vocab. For the most part, people were decent at finding main points. Although some people got really aggressive with the, with the highlighting to the point where it was like, okay, you don't need to highlight the whole document. Um, now what I would do, and I think some people did a good job of this is they, they color coded for themselves a main point color highlighter, and then they used a different color for commentary. So they use like yellow highlighter for these are the main points. And then the stuff that you wanted to add commentary for, they did in red or they did in green, something else. So if you want to do that, because that helps you break things down, then that could be a good tactic for you. Um, and that way it doesn't just look like you're highlighting the entire document and that's what your main points are. Because it is, I, I think it's important for you to start identifying main points and being able to identify main points. Um, and that's a skill that's going to be more important once we start writing. But up until this point right now, I think that it's a problem if you just use the same color for everything. Make sense? Any questions on this? Does this give you a little better, better perspective on close reading? Yes. Okay. Um, if you could, I need you to get out a notebook. But before you get out a notebook, I'm going to give you a two-minute break so that I can adjust things and also give you a break because some of you might be on overload. You can put your Chromebooks away. So when we look at uh, classicism, the, the direct correlation for us, and this is kind of the, the seven characteristics of Renaissance art, you know, we already went through uh, the first couple ones being uh, number one, realism and expression, number two, perspective, number three, classicism. And with classicism, you have a strong influence of the Greco-Roman which is obviously what that word classic means for us throughout the entire year. So always just remember classic equals Greco-Roman. If you haven't written that down somewhere, I would make sure that you do write down that classics equal Greco-Roman. While there is a strong emphasis on secularism, it doesn't mean that they are abandoning religion. And that is one thing that you have to make a consistent theme in the way that you study this period is you don't want to assume that people are abandoning religion. They're not, but it does mean that at times they are willing to do works that are completely secular, which means what? Without a reference to religion, right? So that doesn't mean that they're abandoning it. It just means that they're not referencing it and it's not priority, number one, okay? You even see that at times you will have religious figures that are actually portrayed in a very average, normal way. 
which in the past, in the Middle Ages, they were always had that halo over their head to identify a saint or something like that. They looked saintly. They looked more proportionally big because they were more important. Um, by the time you get to the Renaissance, they're more realistic. Um, then you have that number four, a, a strong emphasis on individualism. And in the Middle Ages, you rarely saw people do a lot of self-portraits or have people do portraits of them, um, mostly because they would probably see themselves like Pope Innocent just described as being terrible and worthless. And, you know, why are you putting a picture of yourself in your house? You're the worst. Um, by the time you get to the Renaissance, that thinking is changing and how people are identifying their value is changing. Now, the other thing that makes this incredibly Renaissance, this painting, is the fact that the background has perspective and realism. And before this, you had no reason for that. Um, so if you did see portraits in an earlier age, you probably would not see that type of realism and expression and perspective in the background. Um, number five is geometric arrangement of figures. And to be more specific, it's in order to create a subject. So or identify a subject. So when you, whenever you see a Renaissance painting, generally the subject is in the middle, not always, but generally they're in the middle. And everyone who is around or decorated around the subject, placed around him, is pointed in a geometric way to demonstrate who the subject is. You think about uh, Da Vinci's Last Supper. You know how they're all kind of like tilted towards Christ in the center? That's this geometric arrangement where even though it's a very linear painting, it's, you know, wide and linear, they use, he still uses perspective to, to point attention. And then the only person that is going the wrong way is who? Judas, right? Because he's halfway out the door, about to sell him down the river and get him crucified. So the, he uses this arrangement to create a subject as well as... Um, Tell a story. Number six is light and shadow. Now, I would argue that the Renaissance light and shadow is still pretty poor for the most part. They are trying. But remember, whenever you do something for the first time, it's generally not very good. And so a lot of times you'll actually find Renaissance works, not generally by the biggest artists, but by some of the lesser known Renaissance artists where the light and shadow is actually wrong. Or it just doesn't work. Um, at least not, you know, physically, like the physics of it are wrong. Later, uh, about 100 years later, by the time you get to the Baroque era, they're much better at it. In the Baroque period, light and shadow is almost central to most works, to, to the point where light becomes the way to demonstrate subject. So in a lot of uh, works in that period, you'd actually have like a window or something like that, and it's going to shine a light on the subject. And then all of the light and shadow is built off of that. Um, in Renaissance work, they're usually more, more that perspective as the way to create painting, which is a little bit different. And then the last significant uh, characteristics is artists as celebrities or um, personalities. And this is going to be demonstrated throughout this era. The best example is going to be the School of Athens, um, which is in the papal libraries. Um, it's a completely secular work, which is super ironic, the fact that it's in the Vatican, um, which is the center of Catholicism, and that the actual piece has no biblical figures, 
no religious figures. It's all Greek figures and then other uh, intellectuals throughout that painting. And what they do and what Raphael does is he actually puts himself in the painting. Even though he doesn't make himself a central figure, he actually makes himself an observer. So he's in the side. When we get to the School of Athens, I'll, I'll show this to you. He's in the side. Uh, he puts Michelangelo in there. He puts Da Vinci in there. These guys that he saw as the movers and shakers of the Renaissance, he places as key figures, guys like Plato and Socrates and others like that um, of the Greek era. So um, moving forward, we are looking at ways in which the artists themselves saw themselves in this era. And one of the things that will be pointed out in the book uh, as you read through this section or, or different sections, which I also put um, book reading on the board and I will upload that to Google Classroom. Um, I have that due, I think, later this week, Thursday or Friday. The Renaissance puts this emphasis on the individual and the whole idea of individualism. But the, the thing about it is it's really this concept of virtue, which is translates the, the Latin translates to essence, like who you are as an individual. And every year I try my best to give an example of what this virtue might mean. Um, and so I'll try to do that for you. I'm assuming that most of you guys have or know someone that has virtue. But let me describe what it is. Have you ever met someone who picks up a piano or just, you know, sits down a piano and can play or picks up a guitar and just can play because they just figure it out, just makes sense to them? Or you sit them in front of a new art form like you're like, hey, let's try some uh, uh, let's let's work with clay and and go throw throw a, a piece together. And they're like, never tried it, but I'll try it. And then they just can do it because they're that good. Like these people are rare, but they exist. And in the Renaissance era, that is what we are defining when we define someone with virtue. It means that it is their essence. It's who they are. They can't not be awesome. Um. You know, I've taught thousands of students and don't get me wrong. I've taught amazing students over the last 14 years. I can still count on one hand ones that I would consider having virtue, meaning that their essence, who they were, made them amazing at everything. It's like, you know, the person who's a all-American lacrosse player, but also is the best artist in their class and also can sing and can also dance. And you're just sitting there going, what can't you do exactly? right? That person is the one with that virtue. And in the Renaissance era, the guys that have this, that embody this, I would argue are your Da Vinci. You can write these down if you want. Da Vinci, Michelangelo, and Durr. Durr, who's amazing, by the way. He's got the D-U double dot R-E-R. Um, now, Durer is German, um, but the thing about him is that he's kind of the Da Vinci of the North. He does everything, um, and he's great. He's excellent. I'll show you, when I show you his signature, his signature is also really, re really easy to find. So if you ever don't know if it's a Durer or not, you can actually somewhat cheat if you can find his signature because he signed everything. Um, and it's, it's just an A.D., but the way that he did it is very unique. 
Um, and so you'll be able to figure it out very quick. The reason I don't put the other Ninja Turtles on there is because I don't find Donatello as being all that great. He's good, but he's not, he's not that essence where it's just like everything he did is amazing. And then I don't find Raphael that either, although, and I would say Raphael didn't find himself that way either. Um, that's why in the School of Athens, he put himself as an observer of guys like Da Vinci and Michelangelo, because I don't think Raphael thought he was a great, Michelangelo and Da Vinci did. They thought they were that good because they were. Yeah. I think it's a combination of both, but I also think that Raphael doesn't have the ability to do, and I will explain this as we go through the pieces. Michelangelo is different. He's just different. Da Vinci is different. You do, you look at Raphael and most people can do things that are similar to Raphael and might even have other skills that Raphael doesn't have. But Raphael is relatively limited in his ability to manipulate other art mediums. And the reason that I, I can say that is when we get to Michelangelo, most people consider his greatest work to be the Sistine Chapel. Now, I think his greatest work is the David. The fact that he has two works that are completely different mediums that are considered in the top five greatest works of art in art history is unbelievable. You have a sculptor and a painter and, and he never did fresco before he did the Sistine Chapel. And he just did it, and it's amazing. It's perfect. Um, so he, he tried something for the first time, figured out very quickly what he couldn't do, and then painted the rest of the ceiling. You know, it's a four-year project. And apparently he went really fast, meaning that a normal painter would have taken eight years. Um, and it's just like the what he did with the David, which I'll explain later, is unique in art history. Raphael is good at a couple of things. Um, he's known as the best Renaissance portrait artist. So he's, he is the best. Like if you look at portrait art, art um, even Michelangelo and da Vinci would, would say Raphael's the best portrait artist. But remember, what's the most famous portrait in Renaissance history? The Mona Lisa, which is da Vinci. So there's reasons that it's more important than other pieces, but... Um, I would just make the argument that Raphael doesn't have the ability to be good at as many things as some of those other guys do. So let's take a look at a couple of different things. Um, I got to start by telling you about a door and then we'll go from there. So we're going to go to Florence first and then I'll get my, I'll work my way towards Michelangelo. Um, in Florence, one of the things that makes it kind of the center of the Renaissance world is the fact that Florence specifically starts to commission a number of works of art in succession that are all being made for the city itself. Um, one of the first, and what I try to explain is in, in the medieval world, there's always three landmarks in every city. What are they? What are the three things that are in the center of pretty much every city in the medieval world? The town hall is actually usually not in the center. The church, the church is one. So next to the big cathedral, what do you think you need to have to make sure that you can keep the city safe? A watchtower. So you have a church, a watchtower, and then what else do you need next to the church? So they're a very Catholic thing. A baptistry so that you can get baptized so you can go to the church. Um, if you go to Pisa, and you look at a picture of Pisa, if it's not just the Leaning Tower, 
you're going to include the cathedral and the baptistry because it's right there. If you go to Florence and you look at the cathedral in Florence, which is the Duomo, right next to it is a giant watchtower and behind you is a baptistry. Because it, and every city has these. So when you get to the city centers, those are the three landmarks. Now, the door that you are looking at is going to be the baptistry doors. So they put a commission out that they're going to redo the baptistry doors. And the best artists at the time uh, who do relief sculpture present works of art that the city council are going to decide. And the two guys that present them are Giberti and Brunelleschi. Now, these guys don't like each other very much. Um, Giberti is relatively well known, but Brunelleschi is very similar to your Michelangelo's or Da Vinci's. He's very egotistical. He believes that he's the best and he actually gets really mad when he doesn't win this commission. You're like, why do you care? Well, the doors end up becoming a huge component of Florence's like history. Um, these are the finished doors here. Now, does anyone know what uh, scene they were given here to, to compete over the doors? Anyone know what, what Old Testament story that this is here? It's not Moses, and I know that these are small pictures, but um, this is actually Abraham and Isaac when Abraham is supposed to sacrifice Isaac, um, and then there's a ram in the in on the side, and and you know they basically Isaac no longer is going to be the sacrifice, and Isaac and Abraham kill the lamb together or the ram together um, and sacrifice that instead, and they come down, and now you know Abraham actually has a lineage in the whole Jewish tradition, right? So it's kind of a big story in the Old Testament. Yes, you have a question, or are you just Moving wrong. Okay, so Giberti wins. Because Giberti wins, Brunelleschi decides that he's never going to work with Giberti again. He hates Giberti and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then there's a commission for the Duomo because, remember, there's a big hole in the top of the cathedral because they're like, we're going to build a dome. They're like, who's going to build it? We don't know. How are you going to build it? We don't know. We're going to build a dome. We're the center of everything that's amazing. We are Florence. We're going to have a dome. Like, okay, so they put the commission out. Who's going to build the dome? And so people keep coming in with ideas. And Brunelleschi apparently took, a, took an egg, I think I told you this, and smashed the egg on the ground or on the table and basically said, look, the bottom of that egg now has the majority of the weight of the dome. And as you go to the top of the egg, there's almost no weight. That's what I'm going to do. So I'm going to put all the weight on the sides. The, the cathedral itself is going to support the circle. And then at the top, there's going to be very little weight at all. And I'll build it that way. And it'll work, I promise. And the reason that he was able to say that is he spent years and years and years, actually, after he lost the doors to Giberti, he went back to Rome, and he spent a lot of time in Rome looking at the Pantheon. And he's like, well, they could do it. How did they do it? And so he's looking and trying to chart, like, how, how is it that, you know, an ancient civilization is able to create a perfect circle with slave labor and an idea, and then they, they create essentially the last freestanding dome in the Western world. And he figures out how to do it. He does these like rib supports underneath, and then he slowly um, like shaves the bricks as they go higher and higher to have less and less weight. Um, and they kind of, it, it creates a um, support that is what we call self-supporting, where it actually proportions out the weight to the base so that it'll work fine now everyone thought that it was just going to fall down like most people that were working on it uh, a lot of times the workers were upset with Brunelleschi because 
he wouldn't tell him what they were doing because he thought that if he told him what they were doing, that they would get rid of him and get a new person in there. So he like never showed anyone. He was just like, just trust me. You have to put it here. Um, like there's legendary stories of the workers saying, I'm not doing that because if I do it, it's going to fall down and I'm going to die. And so Bruno Lesch, he's like, fine, I'll do it. And so he goes up there and does it. And they're like, fine, we'll do it. It's fine. Um, but guess who gets to work with Bruno Lesci? Gilberti, who he doesn't like very much. And so the story goes that instead of giving Gilberti any jobs to do on the actual job site, he makes him his errand boy. So he's like, oh, I really need this from city council. Can you go find it? And then he gets to city council, like trying to look for something. And they're like, yeah, we have nothing. I don't know what you're talking about. And so like Bruno Lesci just kept sending him off site, like because he really didn't like this guy. But um, Bruno Lesci's dome is considered to be one of the modern marvels of the Renaissance era. Um, that's the dome that he modeled it after there on the right, which is the Pantheon. Um, the thing that the Pantheon kind of cheats with is the fact that the center, top center of the dome isn't there, right? There's a, the Oculus, which reduces the amount of weight that would, would have had to gone there if they had put a top on the dome. So um, I think that Brunelleschi may have taken some inspiration from the fact that like, oh, I, I need to just make sure that the top of my dome is weighted properly and it'll work fine. Um, now here's the dome today. Uh, these are both cell phone pictures, so sorry if they're a little out of focus, but like um, the dome on the left, what you can see is that the dome itself, the actual just top, anyone want to guess how big it is? It's about 50 yards. That's half a football field. Okay. Um, this is no small achievement. The, the actual uh, church itself is about a football field and a half. Um, so it's about 150 yards. A third of that is the dome. Um, and then you can see here uh, on the one on the right, the baptistry is the, the thing farthest on the left. See it there in the foreground. And then next to that is the watchtower, which is the tall thing next to it. Um, what is the architectural design of the watchtower, baptistry, and cathedral, excluding the dome? Which uh, arch style is that? Anyone know? It is Gothic, yes. So the entirety of the cathedral, the baptistry, the watchtower are all Gothic. But the top, the dome, is Renaissance. Okay. Here's a look at a couple of other copycats. So you have St. Peter's, which is going to come next. A lot of this was designed by Michelangelo and others. St. Paul's in London, and then, of course, ours later, which is neoclassical. Um, which is kind of the combination of the Greek and Roman styles together. And then from a size perspective, um, I put the, the Superdome in there and Nolens as well. But um, St. Peter's is the one that's really, really big. The Duomo is big as well. But um, there's a rule in the Catholic tradition that St. Peter's has to be the biggest church because it's the center of Catholicism. Um, there's actually only one cathedral that's bigger than St. Peter's. Well, <clears throat> there might be two when Sagrada Familia is finished. But Sagrada Familia is not longer. It's just taller. Um, so I don't know how they're going to work with that one. But we'll talk about that later when I have time. Okay. The whole concept of a Renaissance man. And this is uh, the last bit of notes before we get into some pieces or works of art here. Um 
the guy that is probably most well known for describing a Renaissance man, I'm going to write him down here for you, and I'm sorry ahead of time for my handwriting. His name is Castiglione. And he writes a book called The Courtier. Um, this is in your textbook. You'll see him for sure. Actually, Raphael does his uh, portrait later. As I told you, Raphael does the majority of the major portraits in this era. Uh, Castiglione, in his book, describes what a typical Renaissance man would do. Most people that were, and, and it's kind of a how-to be a noble book. Because remember that you kind of have to be a noble to have time to be a Renaissance man. So he talks about how they would wake in the morning make themselves breakfast, feed the children that they were teaching, usually like the most important noble of the city or maybe a king or a queen. Um, and you would be their tutor who would teach them how to make food. Uh, you would feed them and then you would uh, do some arithmetic after that, uh, take them in the afternoon for a short hunt or something like that, bring back the catch from the hunt, teach them how to cook. And then at the end, uh, you know, they would play music or maybe they would go out and look at the stars and do some scientific discovery, things like that. So a very well-rounded individual. Today, we call it a liberal arts degree. So, you know, essentially, if you're able to do a lot of different things, maybe not really well, like you're not the best at everything, but you can kind of dabble in everything, that's a Renaissance man, okay? I would say that, you know, your high school diploma is leaps and bounds beyond what a Renaissance man would know in the in this period. Um, but that's mostly because you guys have a number of advantages they never had. But obviously, it's hard to compare. Uh, true. Uh, I, I do. I do think that at some point, the current generations are going to come up with a problem of, you know, essentially using Google instead of their brain. Just implant Google, Google and then, then we're all good. Everyone just, everyone just use the Google, and that won't be easy to manipulate at all. Okay, so um, if you need to go back, these slides are online, I promise. Now, here is the first David. I call this the sassy David because he's got his sassy pose with a sassy hat. Um, and... Donatello uh, is who obviously is a Ninja Turtle, so we think he's probably pretty good. Um, is doing what is probably very realistic. It's one of the first free freestanding. It is the first freestanding bronze since the Roman era. Um, it's very lifelike in size. I mean, this one is no no bigger than six feet, something like that. So relatively accurate from a size perspective. The only significant issue for me on the side of realism here. Because he was trying to go by the biblical story of David. What is he standing on here? Which is accurate. It's actually uh, the head of Goliath. Okay. So in this story, David, um, what, the reason that he's naked as well, and, and the David that everyone knows is also naked, is because in the story, um, Saul gives David his armor and says, you need armor. Uh and what, what is ironic, and this is, I, I will explain this later when we get to the David, which is Michelangelo's David. 
he Saul gives him armor. Now Saul is an older man, probably in his 30s. So he's a relatively good-sized person. He gives David his armor. Now he, David never says in the Old Testament that it doesn't fit. What he says is it's uncomfortable. And what he does is he takes off the armor and he says, no, that's not how I tend the sheep. He takes off the armor and says, I'll just go along. And so he goes by himself with a sling and a pouch with rocks, and that's it. Okay. Um, he throws a sling, kills Goliath, who's probably like 10 feet tall, 9 to 10 feet tall, really big. And then he goes and takes Goliath's sword and cuts off Goliath's head. Now, back in the day, swords were bigger based on how big you were. And if you're really big, your sword would be bigger than that. Okay, that sword is about three to four feet. A sword of someone who's 10 foot tall would probably be six to seven feet. It would be really big. Um, so if, if we're looking at like realism, accuracy, things like that, I would say that's the only gripe I have with this piece. Now, here's another piece, another try, another attempt, really. And this is Veraccio's version. Can you turn the lights off for me so people can see it a little better? He's also a little sassy. Less sassy because he didn't have a sassy hat. But Veraccio's version is also very accurate. It's very lifelike. It has the same scene of David killing Goliath and Goliath's head is at the feet. Now, why do you think both artists up until this point utilized Goliath's head at the feet? What is it an easy way of doing? It adds weight to the bottom to create a base. Okay. All this is important for later. Now, why do you think David... The Veraccio's David is clothed, even though the story in the Bible, probably he was unclothed. Yeah? Yes, but remember that Donatello's David came before this one. So why do you think this particular piece is clothed? I think you're still right. And what I would argue is the noble that commissioned this is probably relatively pious or sees himself as being pious and would think nudity, I don't want this in my yard. Because this is going to go in someone's yard, okay? And when they bring people over, it says a lot about yourself if you have nude sculptures in your yard versus clothed, okay? And if this guy is a member of the church or if he's a member of the nobility and he sees himself as being more pious, he probably wants David clothed, okay? Now, we're going to look at the evolution of Michelangelo, and I'll end with the David. Now, Michelangelo is considered by most to be probably the greatest sculptor of all time. There's very few people that debate that. Um, his sculpture is so lifelike that no one really comes close when it comes to this. Um, the first piece that he does, and the reason that Michelangelo has a number one next to him is because I'm going to go through the three great artists of the Italian Renaissance here. Michelangelo is the first one I'll go through. I'll go through Raphael, and then I'll go through Da Vinci. Or I might go Da Vinci, then Raphael. Um, so his first great work was actually done for the Pope in Rome. Does anyone know his first great work? He has another one before this that's good as well, but it's not as well known. It's in the St. Peter's Basilica, and it's right on the right when you walk in. Anyone know? It's this one here called the Pieta. So the Pieta is going to be a piece in art history that is copied over and over and over again. Artists throughout time will go back to the Pieta and do it 
as a remembrance of a variety of things. But the reason that it's considered so good, first of all, look at her dress. Okay, remember, this is marble. He is making that dress look like it is literally falling off her and moving. Okay, see how like detailed the little folds are of her dress or in the top, like next to her head. Um, the hands are incredibly accurate. The body is incredibly accurate. Um, this is kind of what put Michelangelo on the map from a sculpture perspective. He did this when he was still relatively young. Although he did live a relatively long life, he lived from 1475 to 1564. That's 89 years in a period where people lived 30. So he lived almost two and a half lifetimes. So, um, or almost three. Now, what we do when we look at the difference between the Davids here is the one on the left is about six feet. Anyone want to guess what the one on the right is? It's about 20 feet. The block, the block of marble that he was using is 20 feet. So to give you perspective, that's like laying it down would be from here to the back of the classroom, about, okay? A big block of marble. And assume that from here to the back of the classroom is this giant piece of marble, and it's about the size of, if you took my table, one of these that they're sitting at here, and turn it sideways, and it would be about that big going all the way down, right? So they got to stand the thing up. And the legend goes, and realize that anytime you get someone like a Michelangelo and a piece like this, you're going to have legends, right? Well, the legend of him making this is, it was a piece of marble that no one could, could use. Um, if you know much about marble, like you have to be able to break into the marble in order to get it to, to start fashioning it. And two artists tried and couldn't get into the marble. And Michelangelo said, I'll just give it to me. I'll mess with it. He takes the marble and... You know how sculptors do plaster co copies? So you make a little plaster copy so that you can copy it. So you can make all your mistakes first. And then, and that's how they teach artists, sculptors to do it. It's like, make the plaster first, make your mistakes on that. And then, because marble's expensive. So if you're doing a 20, 20 foot block of marble, you don't want to throw it away. Okay, because it's so much marble. Um, the story goes is he didn't make a plaster copy. He just literally said, and, and people that asked him about it, he said, I just took away everything that was not David. Um, and when you look at the detail that he has in this particular piece, I've never seen anything that is this lifelike in my life. Um, you can walk around the David and it is, and you can write this down, it is anatomically perfect. Meaning that every muscle Every vein, every, everything that you would be able to see is there. Except for he missed one muscle in like the back of the guy's shoulder. And that's it. Everything else is exactly anatomically perfect. Yeah. Now, what is awesome about this piece is that when you walk around it, his eyes follow you. Because he created perspective within the sculpture to the point where if you walk around, they literally move with you. And you're like, that shouldn't be a thing. And it is a thing. 
Um, I've done it every time I'm next to this thing and you walk around it and you're like, okay, it's weird. Um, and you just keep going. Now, anyone notice something that's slightly different about this David? Yeah. There's no Goliath. Did I just tell you that this is a 20 foot piece of marble? And he's not even using a giant piece of Goliath's head to keep this thing up. And his foot's coming off the ground. It's because it's perfectly balanced. Okay. You can't tip this thing over. Now you could try, but it's perfectly balanced. Okay. Uh, yes. There's a small piece of like what would be uh, like a tree or something like that that he's standing next to, and that's the only thing that's supporting that 20 foot piece. Now that that is about um, two to three feet uh, in size, but once you walk around it, you realize that it's really not doing much. Like it's just to do a, a small counterbalance and that's it. Um, now, as you can tell in the hands, like incredibly detailed hands, right? They look real, they look lifelike. Uh, now the reason that Goliath's head is not at the foot is that this is the different David, okay? This is a David before Goliath is dead. So this is pre-killing Goliath. And if you look at his eyes, when you look at his eyes, if you get a chance to see him, you will find that he's even a little scared. Um, not scared like I'm going to run away. Scared like I am present. <laughs> um, which is a very different way of looking at David. All the other Davids I've shown you are the conquering David. And what's ironic is, of all of the Davids, which one looks like the conqueror? That one. This one. Now, there are art critics that say, we don't like this David. Because they think, well, he's too big. David's only 16, 17 years old. But remember what I said earlier. David took off Saul's armor. He never said it was too big. He just said, I don't like it. It doesn't fit right. Um, so it's very possible that David actually was a pretty large individual. All right, I'll see you guys on Thursday. He wasn't 20 feet tall.